Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you so much for listening and making a commitment to learning once again, mm-hmm. 52 weeks in a row. <laughs> wow. Can you believe it? I know. We are your hosts. I am Jordan Porter, and I'm joined by the terrific, talented, and tactful Yvonne Brandenburg. Oh, well, hello, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> this week's episode is brought to you by the letter T. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they copyrighted that? Like Sesame Street's like, that's ours. Probably. Oh, God. We Sorry, Sesame Street. Don't get mad at us. <laughs> I mean, for as much as I comment on the magic school bus. This is true. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe they'll cut us some slack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Which childhood like cartoon is your favorite? <laughs> oh, there's well, so I many. guess Sesame Street's not a cartoon. Childhood show? Childhood show. That can include cartoon or live action. There you go. That works. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. <laughs> anyway. This is episode 52. Holy crap. I know. A whole year of recording, and we have obviously special things for episode 53. Oh my God. Like, I know. One year anniversary. So crazy. Dude, it's so crazy. Like, can you believe it? It was funny. You remember when we first started? And we're like, if we make it past episode seven, that means we're really into it. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're like, woohoo, if we could keep this going for like seven weeks. <laughs> Well, it's been a year. Oh my God. So crazy. A whole year. But we'll talk more about that next episode. Yes. We'll get there. Yes. We do have a little bit of housekeeping to do this week. We did have one review, which is great. Review says, and it's from BC Respo 625. um, And this was on Apple. Says, great podcast. I love this podcast. Very informative and easy to understand and use in daily practice. I am so excited to see what the future holds for these ladies. They do a great job. We've been needing a resource like this just for vet techs. Thank you. That is why we did it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just wait, BC Respo. We have so much in store. What if it's B Crespo? Okay. Oh man. I apologize if we mess that up. I mean, it Apple IDs are so silly because I'm like, I made that up when I was like 21 and it means nothing to me now. <laughs> well, didn't they have ones where it would like kind of just make one up for you? <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The random number and letters. Yes. I yeah. think so. Yeah. Um, but yes, we we have we have things planned and uh, I feel like poor poor Jordan and I are are, are kind of this week. This week's a lot. <laughs> we we got we some, did it to ourselves. And <laughs> we we did do it to ourselves. We crammed a lot of stuff into the next week and a half. <laughs> and yes, we, and we didn't plan very well for that, but that's okay. That's okay. We're gonna get it done. It's still gonna be amazing. We're just not gonna sleep for the next week, right? We're like vet tech appreciation week. 
plus one year anniversary or our birthday. I'm going to call it our birthday. Yeah. Our one year birthday, our first birthday. That's probably how you should say it. Not your one year birthday. <laughs> it's called our 12 month birthday. Our 12 month birthday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So we have our one year birthday, our first birthday. God, I can't just, see. It just doesn't sound right. Our first <laughs> birthday does. is next week. So on the, what is that? The 13th, October 13th. Mm-hmm. So Tuesday, October 13th will be one year, which is insane. So for uh, the next week, week and a half, something like that, uh, we've got a couple of things. So we, um, we are letting you guys uh, give us some birthday wishes. Um, so if you are interested in doing that, we'd love to hear from you guys. Just leave me a message. Uh, the phone number is 925-579-1216. Uh, and you can leave a message there. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll play it on the show. Um, so we, we definitely would love to hear from you guys. Um, and then if you can make sure that gets in by the 11th, so Sunday, the 11th, so you just have a couple of days left to get those in. Um, so that way we can edit and put it in the show notes and podcasts and everything. Cause otherwise Jordan will kill me. Yes. I need those in so I can actually <laughs> like not put them in last minute. Exactly. <laughs> So Sunday, October 11th at 8.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, we are doing a webinar for manual platelet counting, which will kind of go with the the last episode we did in this episode. Um, so you'll be able to do platelet counts and we'll, we'll get you the webinar. Plus, we have a handy cheat sheet that goes along with that. Um, and you can go to imfpp.org slash webinar to see how to, to get in on that one. And then Monday, October 12th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time or 12 p.m. Central Standard Time, Royal Canaan is allowing us to do a webinar for them. And it's going to be a one-hour race-approved webinar on upping your tech game, being a rock star technician. Um, and you can register at imfpp.org slash RC registration. So RC as in Royal Canaan. Um, so that should be good that, like I said, both of those webinars on Sunday and Monday are one hour race approved. So definitely mm -hmm. try to join us. There will be recordings though. So don't worry. Yeah. So right now, um, I believe only the manual platelet count will be race approved for the recording. We'll need to work on getting the, uh, the Royal Canaan webinar recording race approved. The live is definitely race approved. So um, check out again, check out imfpp.org slash webinar for all the upcoming webinars we've got going on and the links to them. And then uh, for Vet Tech Week, we also are putting the final touches on our Vet Tech Appreciation Week poster. Um, so we'll we'll make sure to get the link up there um, for you guys and you can download a copy and just see your wonderful smiling faces for everyone who shared images with us to, to put that together. So that is uh, kind of our birthday, our first birthday, and then Vet Tech Appreciation Week. I mean, it's it's a bunch of celebration happening next week, which is super cool. Oh, and before we forget, the bonus episode will also be next week on, I think we're doing at Thursday. Is that sound yeah. right? Yeah, so Thursday. Thursday. So make sure you're... Yeah, that was an episode that we did with Vet Tech Cafe... Radio Vet Nurse, Two Vets Talk Pets, and Vet Anesthesia Arts. 
Yes. And make sure that um, you're subscribed to our podcast so you'll see it um, automatically in your, your podcatcher. So, all right. Well, this week we are doing part two of immune-mediated hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia. Or if you want to talk about Evans syndrome, we throw that in as well. Uh, make sure that you listen to part one last week. Um, this will be a continuation of that. So we did a lot of discussing about what the disease was, anatomy and physiology and history last week. Um, and this week we're going to be talking about diagnostics and kind of treatment plan. Cause I feel like they almost go hand in hand. Um, so that's what we'll be talking about this week. So it's a two-parter. Make sure you listen to episode 51, which is part one. And this is part two. All right. Anything else we talked about before we dive in? No, I think last week we left off just before we, we kind of touched on like doing tick-borne testing and stuff like that. So that's kind of, that's where we're going to kind of pick up on um, just because lab work is a, it plays a huge role in diagnostics in, in this, in these disease processes. So aside from your normal CBC chemistry that you're going to have done, um, maybe UA, we'll talk about that a little bit more about the things that we might see on a CBC, um, but tick-borne diseases. So tick-borne vectors, Coombs test, which is diagnostic for IMHA, mind you, I don't know about you. We don't run those tests very often. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I've, I've run it a couple of times, but uh, I think I've run the, it the problem is, is you <laughs> like, can get false positives. Yeah. Um, because there's other things that it can pick up on that'll, that'll say it's positive. So it's, I don't think you can get false negatives but you can get false positives. And so I feel like there's just other tests that are, uh, I don't know how to describe that. The other, other tests that are just better use of money, I think. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Because it also takes a couple of days to get that test back. So a lot of times we're going to treat for it anyway. And if the patient yeah. is responding or if we see things like spherocytes or slide uh, agglutination, saline agglutination, which we'll talk about a little bit, like we're going to pretty well know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I know these patients can present almost like a DIC patient. So um, like a coagulopic episode um, or coagulopathic episode. So a lot of tests that we'll run, especially if patients are bleeding or bruising or anything, we're going to go to our coag testing. So PT, APTTs are useful, especially if a Combs test is negative or there's no spherocyte seen on a slide. Last week, we discussed kind of how to recognize the spherocyte, uh, and I'm sure in our platelet webinar, we can probably find a picture. Yeah, I, I definitely have some spherocyte pictures because of uh, my Evans talk that I did, so yeah, I definitely have um, microscope images of, of spherocytes. Yeah. Uh, D-dimers are also um, a good test. Same thing, though, kind of with the combs, like that's one of those tests that we don't run super frequently because by the time you get the test results back, the patients are either better or they're a lot worse. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it in the coagulation episode that we did like the reasons behind it. And it's, we usually, I mean, with these, especially your th thrombocytopenic patients, yes, we do want to make sure that you know, we're not 
hypocoagulable because of clotting factors and all that stuff, or because we got into rat bait or, you know, stuff like that. So unfortunately, I think we talked about it in episode 51. So part one, that, that IMHA, ITP, they really are diagnosis of rule outs. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard because you have to do all of this lab work and all of these diagnostic tests. You hope they all come. Well, I don't know. The goal is if they're all negative, then we know it's like immune mediated. Um, I don't know if your, your goal, your hope is that they're negative because if they're positive, at least you can maybe like correct things. But um, (laughs) so it, you know, you you do have to rule out DIC to make sure that's not what's going on compared to immune mediated disease. When we're looking at a CBC, we're also looking at what kind of anemia do we have? Do we have a regenerative anemia. So if we have a regenerative anemia, we're seeing nucleated red blood cells. So baby red blood cells, we're seeing anisocytosis. So different sized cells, because again, if you remember back to hematology, young red blood cells are going to be larger. And as they age, they kind of get a little bit smaller and more that, that size that we're used to. And then polychromasia. So we have the, the more, blue staining ones that are the younger cells versus the, the, the older cells. And sometimes we'll actually see, um, like they're lighter in color. They don't pick up the stain as well because they don't have enough iron in them. And so they look paler than normal. So those are kind of the things that we'll see. We also, if we're looking at, at anisocytosis, remember spherocytes are smaller in size than regular cells too. So you can have teeny tiny red blood cells all the way up to giant nucleated red blood cells. But I like when I see anisocytosis in polychromasia because I feel yeah. so smart when I write that in the notes. <laughs> First off, I know how to spell both words. Right. <laughs> I have written them so many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it just like, it sounds so clinical. <laughs> yeah, it definitely yeah. does. <laughs> Yeah. And, and the great thing, I mean, I like being able to write anisocytosis and polychromasia because that means it's regenerative. That means the bone marrow is functioning and pushing out those young red blood cells and hopefully making it so, you know, it, it, it's not just like, it's not saying, ah, oh, there's anemia. I don't care. You know, the bone marrow is doing what it's supposed to do. So, you know, hopefully you're seeing that regeneration. Yeah, because it is a little depressing when you don't see any of that. It's like, especially when you don't see any nucleated reds or mm. like we will occasionally count reticulocytes mm-hmm. um, and then compare it to the lab just to see yeah. <laughs> you yep. know, how, how good we are <laughs> at it. Um, and it's always so depressing, like when it's non-regenerative because it's so much harder to like just combat. So our non-regenerative blood smears will like the uh, morphology is normal, uh, normocytic and possibly pale. Like they don't stain, they don't take up as much stain. Um, and that this can just indicate some bone marrow dysfunction. So no young red blood cells are being released. A lot of those patients though, because we get that feeling from it, those are the ones that as long as their coags and platelets and stuff are normal, we'll typically do a bone marrow aspirate. Yeah. That's a cool 
slash disgusting procedure. Right? The bone marrow aspirate and biopsy. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. Like I'm not a big fan of bones in general, let alone like shoving a big needle in one and sucking stuff out. Yeah. You know, one of these days for our like anniversary (laughs) episode, we should just like post the videos of us like doing some of these hand gestures that we do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We definitely could. So the saline agglutination test is another thing we can do to check for our red blood cells, which is one drop of EDTA whole blood and one drop of normal or 0.9% saline. Um, And you put a drop of each on a slide and you look at it. um, Ideally, you did a a perfect stick or just even perfect stick with a vacutainer so that, you know, we can see is agglutination already happening like in the potentially in the bloodstream or is it, you know, is it um, just like, you know, you did a bad draw kind of thing. So we, um, we would look for that and that, and that lets us know if, if it's auto agglutinating. Um, so that saline agglutination test is, is good for that. And I think I talk about like what causes auto agglutination back in episode 50 when we talked about our basics, I think so. That was my tip yeah. of the week. So um, go back and listen to that because autoagglutination though too is kind of like a slam dunk for IMHA. Yeah. So yeah. we it's consider it. Dry. Yeah, we consider it diagnostic for IMHA when we see saline agglutination positive tests. Yes. Um, and then the other part of the CBC when we're talking about platelets, so ITP is we really are looking for platelets that are decreased. So less than 50,000 per microliter. Um, and this is, it's really important to do like a, a slide, diff- like a, at least a manual slide, like looking at it because you want to make sure that there isn't like a bunch of um, platelet clumps in, in your sample, because if there's platelet clumps, well, then our number is going to be falsely decreased on our, you know, CBC. Um, I know that in my clinic, we typically do manual platelet counts once a day. Um, a lot of times that's us doing it. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. At least once a day. I mean, like at least. Yeah. Or sometimes depending on if like we're doing blood draws. (laughs) Yeah. We basically do one for every procedure, like any fine needle aspirate procedure, even if they have a CBC, like we'll check it just to be sure. Mm -hmm. Um, we do it. We have a lot of rechecks that are IMHA, ITP. Yeah. That we'll recheck. Um, I think the only time I, we don't check one is if we've checked one, like if we have an inpatient and we checked one on like say Monday and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the rest of the stay in the hospital, as long as it was fine. Like then we Yeah. If it's, it. if it's fine. Yeah. But like our ITP patients, we usually do a manual platelet count at least once a day. For sure. While they're in the hospital. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll, again, we have our, we have our webinar coming up on it. Um, but it's a blood smear evaluation. You're doing it a hundred times oil immersion. You're not doing it any other way. And then you're going to count between 10 to 20 high power fields, average those multiply, um, by 15 to 20,000. And so you take your average, multiply it. And so like, for example, if you saw 
17 total platelets <laughs> on 10 high power fields. That's an average of 1.7, <laughs> which is not good. Uh, one seems point, like normal for us. I mean, for us, it's normal, but <laughs> I don't think in the regular world it's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would take your 1.7, multiply um, between by 15 to 20,000. Uh, so you would then get 25,500 per microliter to 34,000 per microliter. Um, or if you're writing it down, most of the times we'll do like 25.5 K per microliter or 24 K per microliter. Um, and so then that's what you would tell your, your doctor. Um, and the nice thing is when you're doing those manual platelet counts, you're looking at the morphology. So Mm -hmm. you're going to look to see, you know, what do the platelets look like? Are they tiny? Are they microcytic? Are they megakaryocytes? Again, megakaryocytes are very similar to red blood cells, like our nucleated red blood cells. They're large because the large platelet cell hasn't broken down into normal platelet sizes. Yeah. And that tells us the bone marrow is responding and creating more platelets. Yes. So especially once we've already done our suppression, you'll start seeing megakaryocytes. You'll start seeing more nucleated blood cells. So those are all good things. Those are, those are the things that we're looking for. And we're usually like doing the happy dance for. (laughs) As much as I love like the cool, like long medical terms, we never say megakaryocytes. I always just call them giant platelets. Yeah. I say large platelets. platelets. Yeah. Giant platelets seen. Yes. Yep. So giant platelets or large platelets present. Apparently I'm biased for like red blood cells versus platelets. (laughs) (laughs) I think I probably say the same thing. I think I say large platelets present. I don't think I go, there are megakaryocytes. I think I just say large platelets. I'm going to start saying megakaryocytes now. I'm just going to be one of those people. It sounds like a dinosaur. Yes. It's the mega karyocyte. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, that was for you. <laughs> yep. I love it. Um, People like to listen to us. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so when, because again, like Jordan and I were just talking about, we do these, we're doing these on a daily basis for our ITP patients. We're not doing platelet counts for our MHA patients, unless it's an Evans patient. Um, and it's we really, do them maybe, I guess it depends. <laughs> if we're yeah. I, I think we just do like morphology, right? Like we do a manual CBC. Yes. And then if the platelet, like, cause sometimes like, so if I'm seeing if like petechiation is getting worse yeah. or they start having GI bleeding, then yeah, I'll count platelets too. It depends on the IMHA symptoms that are presenting right. on right. that day. Yeah, exactly. Like if the patient is like bleeding somewhere yeah from consumption i'm like ah yeah and um because we're doing that on a daily basis um and it's not always like the one person that does it it's a really good idea to have like a standard form that helps you track your trends keeps consistency you know in the medical record you see the same type of language and see the same things that are being evaluated um so we created a uh form for that and that's in the treasure trove as well so if you um, have signed up for the newsletter you have access to that if you're in the membership you also have access to it um and if you uh go to the platelet counting 
webinar, we'll, we'll also get you a link for that um, because it's really important to be able to, to have that be um, consistent. And then the other things we'll be doing is PCBs. Um, so we want to make sure our red blood cells aren't dropping. So normal for dogs and cats is usually 35 to 55 for dogs, 25 to 45 for cats. Um, so we'll be checking those, especially on our IMHA patients um, to make sure we don't need to give a transfusion for the first time or again. Um, so those are, those are definitely things we're doing. And then again, for platelets, we're also doing um, a saline agglutination test just to make sure we also don't have red blood cell issues. Yeah. And we talked about it a little bit last week though, where yes, the normal for dogs and cats is typically between like 35 and 55 and 25 and 45, mm -hmm. but we're treating the symptoms. Like we're not going to, if I have a cat with a hematocrit of 20, we're not going to jump to a blood transfusion. Not if it's sitting there walking around. No. <laughs> and not I'll if it's like, gone up. Like if it, it depends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it was 16 overnight and now it's 20, first off, I mean like happy dance, right? Because like, yeah. if you can get it to go up 4% just overnight, yeah, stellar. Yeah. And, and I think we talked about it last week is you, you want to make sure that they're not, not hypoxic. So mm -hmm. checking like an SPO2 that lets us know the cells that are there, granted it may be 16%, but if the cells that are there are carrying oxygen and we're at 99 to 100% and the dog's you know, quiet or cat is quiet, but they're able to do normal functions, then we don't necessarily have to do a blood transfusion. But if they're hypoxic, so their SpO2 is not normal range or they're struggling to breathe or anything like that. And let's say you supplement with oxygen, that's probably more the time that you're going to want to do a blood transfusion. Because again, blood transfusions are not benign. There are issues. Nope. So the other, um, the other diagnostic tools that we're going to do, we're going to do imaging. Um, we need to make sure that there are, you know, no Mets in the chest. We're going to look at thoracic x-rays. We can look for, um, pulmonary thromboembolism. Um, hopefully you don't have that because unfortunately I'm HAITP patients because they're in a hypercoagulable state. It is very common for them to get, um, microemboli and it's very common for it to go mm -hmm. into the lungs. So which is why we don't poke their jugs. Even if it's an IMHA yeah. and they have normal platelets, like we don't poke jugs. Yeah, because it just patients. it just goes straight to their lungs if if they because again, they're hypercoagulable unless you're treating for it. They're hypercoagulable because of the inflammation and just everything that's going on. Which really um, sucks too because they usually don't do that until they like start to rally. Yeah. Yeah. Or a long time into disease process. Yeah. Um, ultrasound is also very important. Make sure again, there's nothing metastatic in there. Um, so we're going to look for the liver. Usually we'll see hepatomegaly, splenomegaly. We can see some anechoic per peritoneal effusion. That is something that we look for. Um, again, that lets us know that something else may be going on. Um, and then procedures for diagnostics, we kind of touched on it a few seconds ago, is going to be your bone marrow uh, biopsy and or cytology. Um, so 
do you do do you do aspirates and biopsy or do you just do aspirates we usually just do aspirates but if we can get a core biopsy while doing the aspirate we do <laughs> like yeah we always we always try to get the bone marrow biopsy and then do the the aspirates um our doctors because mm-hmm. the idea is right you're you're getting you're getting a core sample of the bone marrow which is going to look for you know <laughs> are the precursor cells okay? Or do we have um, lymphoma in there? You know, so the biopsy is really good for that. Cytology, like an aspirate, that's going to look at the blood that's in there mm-hmm. um, and look to see, you know, are there nucleated red blood cells in there? Is Are there megakaryotes? What's going on in the, in the bone marrow? So bone marrow biopsy and cytology rules out, hopefully leukemia, multiple myeloma, lymphoma, those are kind of the big, the big things that'll rule out. Mm-hmm. Um, and interesting enough, thrombocytopenia is actually not a contraindication for doing a bone marrow biopsy or cytology, which kind of blows my mind, actually. It does blow my mind. And we have done it because they can have ITP <sighs> from bone marrow disease. It's just, yeah. it scares me. Yeah. Even yes. though like, I know it's <laughs> like, okay. You're like, it's, it's fine, I guess. Okay, God. Yeah. I, it, yeah, we usually wait. (laughs) Yeah, we wait too. We wait until it's over like 40,000 and then we're like, all right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Got it. (laughs) Yep. I don't know why in our clinic, 40,000 is like the magic number. That's our, that's our number where we're like, okay, cool. Now we can do things. 40 to 50,000 is kind of our, our magic area. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So I think part of the reason why I love these cases so much, even though they can be a little heartbreaking and very challenging is mm. because of like the tech skills that we can use. Careful handling basics. Like we've talked about it before in several of our episodes where we just, we really want to pad the cage as well. We really mm-hmm. want to be careful how we handle these patients um, and how we draw blood. Yeah. It's crazy that you say that because um, we had a patient that had ITP and it was, um, I want to say it was like a husky ish thing. Um, and it had obviously huskies have like that super thick fur and we didn't ultrasound. So it, he was shaved and we had, you know, those, um, the, the plastic, like anti-slip great things that you can put in the bottom of cages. They're kind of knobbly, but it makes it so it lifts them up off of the actual floor. Yeah, those metal grates, we had them at a couple of the general practices that I worked at, but we don't have them where I work now. Yeah, we have uh, the ones that we have are like kind of plasticky. And it was crazy because we picked up this dog to get him outside and we we're like, oh my God, what are, what are these crazy bruises? And he had like striped bruises on his abdomen. And we figured out it was because he had very low platelets. But laying on that grate and like just the weight of his body actually put like bruises that were in the shape of the, in the shape of the grate on him. Yeah, that's and we great. were like, okay, got it. Way more padding for you. <laughs> yeah. And it took us a little bit to understand like what was going on. Cause we were like, what is this? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's very symmetrical looking. And it was in, yeah, it, it ended up being the grates and we were like, okay, 
Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And so like, I mean, so something like that, like we monitor these patients for petechia, hemorrhage or other bleeding disorders. So with these patients, I am closely watching their urine. Mm. I, people will think I'm crazy because when I'm out in the yard with these pets, like I'm like looking under their tail yeah. and I'm just like, uh, it clients are like what the hell are you doing and I'm like I need to see if it's blood because it's always a dachshund that's low to the ground or a little white fluffy thing that's tiny yeah Yeah. and then sometimes depending on the patient and the petechiation if I think it's getting bigger I'll draw like with a marker around Mm -hmm. the border of the petechia yep and then I'll just mark all the petechiation to see if new ones come up the next day yeah um we sometimes we use um we have like an electronic whiteboard um, so we have iPads and sometimes oh, we'll just pictures. take pictures because sometimes yeah. you don't realize what color they're turning, you know, <laughs> like, yes, you yeah. have a Sharpie, but what color are they? Yeah. So keep documenting. It helps a lot too. Yeah, for sure. On all these patients charts, we write no jug sticks. If venipuncture, yeah. if we do do venipuncture, we apply a pressure wrap for 30 to 60 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer, just, yeah. But well, and once you remove that pressure wrap, you need to be very careful and closely monitor the site. We actually yes. had a patient. She was, she was a little poodly, like a little teacup poodle. And I think she weighed like three and a half kegs or something crazy like that. And we did a black, um, I think we did like a medial saphenous blood draw and she had a pressure wrap on, I mm-hmm. think for like a half an hour or an hour and we took it off and nobody kind of went and double checked her yeah. and, until about like, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour later. And her leg was giant. Um, and she actually bled so much into her leg that she needed a blood transfusion because oh she's God. teeny tiny. So all of the blood like went into her leg. Cause we were like, yeah, it was, it was insane. So <laughs> definitely monitor <laughs> when you take off pressure wraps to make sure that they're still not bleeding because sometimes you do need to put another pressure wrap on or well, and we need to be careful to when removing it so we don't dislodge whatever exactly. tiny clot they actually have there yeah. yeah and and pressure wraps pressure wraps do not need to be cranked down this is this is this is a soapbox for me yeah i it's see not... it by the look on your face you don't need to crank down on a pressure wrap because you want, you want gentle pressure because you want the blood to still flow past that area. Otherwise platelets and if there are platelets, stuff's not going to get to there. So if you like tourniquet down the spot, you actually are not letting the body do what it needs to do. So gentle, firm pressure, not tourniqueting after getting a blood draw. So that is, yeah, that is my soapbox. (laughs) <laughs> for now <laughs> and then if we're able to obtain blood from a peripheral iv catheter we do now the only problem with this with our imha patients is if we're pulling blood from an iv catheter we only usually do it at the time of placing an iv catheter because we don't want to waste blood like when you're pulling yeah. blood from an iv catheter you have to waste like basically the the hub loss or whatever's in your t-port or whatever um, well, but you can, you can treat it like a central catheter where you have like your quote unquote waste sample can yeah. go into like a heparinized syringe and you can actually give it back to them. Yes. My um, doctor is like anti-heparin unless yeah. of course they're already on something. Like if they're already 
if we already are treating for like hypercoagulation, then yeah. yeah, we could probably do that. But yeah. And you need to be careful. Like when we're talking like heparinized saline, um, smaller patients, if we're doing this, that heparin, we need to be very cognizant of like the dose of heparin that we're giving versus like if it's a germ, German shepherd, golden retriever, whatever giant dog, that little bit of heparin that you're getting that you're flushing back in is not going to be a problem. So, you know, you just need to be careful with these patients, you know, maybe it's just saline. So kind of check it out. But if you have a patient with low platelets, you may just want to use your catheter instead of doing a fresh stick. Um, but here's the other issue. We're not using central catheters in these patients because no. of either one, they don't have enough platelets. And if it blows, that's bad. Or two, we, they already are at high risk for throwing clots and central catheters are prothrombic pro anyways. So they're prone to throwing clots around it. So either way, central catheters really are not a good idea for like an immune mediated patient, um, unfortunately. But a lot of times you can use a peripheral catheter for like a simple blood draw. Like if you're just checking a T-billy or mm. something like that, you can use it. We don't typically use a peripheral catheter for like a CBC. Lately, no, we want a nice clean stick for those. Yeah. And but like, but chemistries, you, you could definitely use it. Cystocentesis is definitely off the table for these patients. Don't do, um, <laughs> don't do it. We've talked about this before, so I'm not even going to go too far on, on that one. Yes. Um, if you need to hear that tech rant, I believe that is in the Coags episode. It's also in one of the jaundice episodes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been, it's been, it's been, uh, been ranted before. So <laughs> we have our moments. Yeah. It's okay. Um, we talked about handling gently. So same, like, um, so my patient the other week with like the bruising on the neck from being chewed on by the sibling Ooh, puppy, yeah. uh, that patient, we didn't put slip, slip leads around the neck because we didn't want to dislodge any clots or anything yeah. that were around there. So we kind of looped it around like the shoulder, arm, chest area. Um, yeah, made, we, like, do, a makeshift we do a lot of harnesses for ITP patients, especially yeah. when they are really low, like either no platelets or under 20, 40,000. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we'll just do a harness yeah. um, because we can't really hold off bugs <laughs> and things. So we do, yeah. we do the harnesses. And the other thing too is wet food. Um, yes. So it's really important with these guys, especially when they're under 50,000 platelets to do wet food. And the reason for that is if they're doing kibble or anything hard like that, they can actually scrape their gums and cause bleeding in their mouth. And then mouth bleeding is no fun. If you've ever dealt with a patient with it, it's, it's not good. Um, and then just while they're in hospital, we need to be really careful about looking for a thromboembolic event. Um, again, the most common one is going to be a pulmonary thromboembolism. Um, I'll, I'll tell this story here. Um, so my dog, um, she, that's actually, she, she got a PD. Um, it was one of those things where she, she was just off a little bit and we had been weaning her off of medications and she was at my clinic for something totally different while I was in a sister clinic. 
<clears throat> and the doctor called and said, Hey, you know, her respiration rate's going up. It's kind of weird because normally that doesn't happen. And then like within a course, like 12 hours, she ended up in the oxygen cage um, because she had thrown a clot to her lungs. Um, and, and it's pretty sudden. So if you start seeing your patients in hospital, start having respiratory issues and you're offering oxygen and it's not working, you know, you need to be very careful that they very well could have thrown a clot to their lungs. <clears throat> um, interestingly, um, with IMHA patients, um, there, there have been studies that show that most IMHA patients have had some sort of infarct somewhere, whether that's kidneys, liver, or anything like that. Um, they show it on autopsies that most of them have either microclots places or they have large clots. Um, it's just super common for them to have clots, which is one of the reasons why we treat with like, you know, Plavix or clopidogrel or aspirin or something like that. Cause they're so mm -hmm. prone to it. Um, and the way to monitor for that, Jordan made fun of me. Um, the way to monitor for those things is like the, the VCM or the TEG. So monitoring the, um, coagulation state with like a viscoelastogram. And again, go back to the coagulation episode for, for more information on that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you don't have one of those like me, yeah, unfortunately, I just have to wait till they start showing symptoms, which sucks. <laughs> well, or I know before we had it, we just, everybody got clopidogrel. Like that was yeah, just yeah, part we of the treatment plan. And then once you start weaning off the pred, I, I don't know if it was like, once you were fully off the pred or if you were under like a certain dose, we were just like, okay, we're going to assume you're not so coagulable right now. And we started weaning them off of the, the plavix. Yeah. Yeah. That's about what we do too. But every inpatient is on some sort of anti-clotting agent. Which is funny because we don't always start with inpatients. And the reason my doctors don't start because uh, clopidogrel is their go-to and the problem with clopidogrel is a lot of times it causes like GI upset. So my doctors will, and it takes, I want to say it's, it's like it's two like, weeks. Yeah. I was going to say it's, a, it's quite a while. So two weeks. So a lot of times they'll just wait the extra three to four days until they're, you know, out of the hospital, they're eating and then they'll start the clopidogrel because they're like, well, it takes two weeks to kick in anyways. And so, um, a lot of times we'll wait, um, to get yeah. them started on that and just monitor really closely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we do do like aseptic handling with these patients. So we are in there cleaning their cages at least every day. I mean, it's not like if they soil their cage, right. we should we're be like, cleaning it. We're like, you sit in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you peed, you sit. <laughs> that, that is not what happens. No, Although not some at all. People think we do that. We don't. I got to say though, I don't know. There's something like soothing for me every morning. Like I just, I have my routine where I get in, I get the patient out, the patient, like I like mm. keep the patient just next to me and I just wipe down the cage. Like, it's just like a nice, like fresh, it's like, I'm freshening up your bed. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we wash our hands. We wear gloves. We don't handle other potential infectious agents because we're putting these patients on <laughs> High doses of immune suppressants. <laughs> yes. I mean, they're prone to like UTIs, like something as simple mm -hmm. as a UTI, but like, we also don't want to cause like an upper respiratory or any other 
mm-hmm. awful thing that could really just hinder them, yeah. especially because we also or don't want to cause any more inflammation. Or who knows what like, else. Yeah. So we usually try to divide up patients. If we have like a newly diagnosed IMHA, ITP, anything immune mediated, um, we usually, div- or even a chemotherapy patient for that matter, um, we'll have like one person who kind of deals with them. And then um, the other person will deal with like anything that we think potentially is infectious or like the young animals. Like we try not to make it so that the same person is handling all of that. So hopefully you have enough staff in your clinic to be able to do that. Um, hopefully you don't work in a clinic where that's not an option. Um, and then interesting kind of some of the, the hospitalization things. So IMHA, ITP, um, the, the statistics say 50 to 80% of these patients survive to release of hospital. If it's an Evans syndrome, they, the, the literature says 50 to 75% chance, which is funny. It, I feel like the, the survival of release from hospital is about the same for any of these, mm-hmm. um, just depending on like what their prognostic indicators are, which we'll talk in a second. Um, Evans syndrome, because it is, again, it's platelets and red blood cells. They just tend to be more susceptible to relapse because they tend to have just more severe disease most of the time, not always, but most of the time. Um, but the poor prognosis, poor prognostic indicators, um, is going to be increased T bilis, hyperbilirubinemia, um, or low albumin. So hypoalbuminemia or increased band neutrophils, toxic cells, those kinds of things. Um, those tend to be not as, they tend to just linger in the hospital for longer, or they just, they just tank at some point, especially if you see that T billy just climbing, um, because that means they're, they're just lysing cells and not keeping it. And that's usually IMHA more so than ITP. Yeah. Uh, I hate when they come in ictric because it's just like, oh yeah, it's wah, already wah, like, wah. A, it's like a bad battle. Cause you're like dealing with all of that. It's like uphill from there. Yeah. yeah. Um, these patients are getting blood transfusions. We talk about blood transfusions quite a bit in episodes 26 and 27. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into too much detail. We also just between this episode and last week's episode talked about when we're going to give blood transfusions. Yep. Um, to treat anemia. So less than 15%, uh, we're going to be treating hypoxia usually. Um, and then also we can monitor arterial blood gases. So greater SpO2, well, arterial blood gas measurement is better than monitoring just SpO2, but however, these (laughs) patients, we can't do art sticks. So it's not ideal. Yes. It would be great to be able to actually read blood gases in these patients to see how hypoxic they really are versus doing an SpO2 monitor, but it's not safe. safe. Um, Uh And these patients are getting packed red blood cells if available. Yeah. Cause most of the times they, they are normotensive um, and they have a normal blood volume. They're, they just need the red blood cells. So ideally you're doing packed red cells instead of whole blood, but if that's all you have, and they cross match fine, then that's what they get. (laughs) Um, And the other thing to really kind of keep in mind is our blood transfusions and some of these things, they're, they're band-aids. They're, they're temporary fixes while we wait for the immune suppression 
to happen. Um, and it takes three to five days for immune suppression to happen. So that's usually when we start kind of seeing red blood cells and platelets come back in that two to five day window. And then the peak of like when the immune is suppressed, the peak that we're going to see is about four to seven days. Um, if it takes longer than that, uh, if it takes longer than that, it, it can happen. We've, I've definitely seen patients take longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if it takes longer, we're usually adding in secondary agents already instead of just this, the single ones We're we're being just more aggressive with treatment, um, because that means they probably have more aggressive disease, um, which is no fun. Yeah. Yeah. And we're doing daily cytology, kind of like we already talked about. We're looking at red blood cells and platelet morphology, manual counts. So we're going to look for uh, spherocyte morphology for immune mediated destruction of red blood cells. So yeah. And hopefully we see like the spherocytes go away. I love when I stop seeing them. (laughs) Yes. That's always a good sign. So our spherocytes, once again, are round, smaller diameter, decreased central pallor, and they stain a little bit darker than normal. And we talked about it in last week's episode too. So Mm -hmm. definitely remember to check out that part. Yeah. Um, We're checking PCVs, um, mm -hmm. pack cell volumes every six to 12 hours, especially if there's no transfusion. If there's a transfusion on the orders where a patient's been given transfusion, we're going to check those PCV numbers a lot more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we usually, if a transfusion is given, we'll usually check one to two hours post transfusion Yeah, same. every six to 12 hours until either the number's holding or climbing. And then we'll kind of taper it back a little bit. Yeah. Um, human IVIG, we use brand Prevagen. Um, yeah, I don't know if we have a specific brand that we use, but yeah, this can decrease platelet recover time. So we use this a lot in our ITP patients periodically in our IMHA patients. And it's a human infusion. Like it's human blood. Ew. Yeah. It's like a xenotransfusion. <laughs> it is a xenotransfusion, which is kind of crazy. Um, there is no evidence that it'll help IMHA, which is why we've only given it a few times. It's kind of our last resort in IMHA patients, but it's a yeah. first resort in ITP patients. <laughs> Ooh, it's definitely not our first. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like IVIG is definitely the last for our patients because it's so expensive. It's so expensive. We offer it first because I also special order. I don't necessarily keep it on the shelf unless I, unless it's mm. spring. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless it's spring. <laughs> and it's so expensive. Yeah. I think we look out because we do have four clinics or four yeah. hospitals. So we do order it and we kind of will spread it, spread it around the hospitals, mm-hmm. but we don't because I mean I, I and again I'm in California, but I think it's over like a thousand dollars for a transfusion. And oh for and sure, easily. There's there's other treatments we can do that are less expensive. So yeah, we usually if, say it's a last resort for us. Yeah, because we also like if uh, if a client's gonna spend the money on that, but then not be able to afford the rest of the treatment or a possible yeah. blood transfusion, then we or forego the it. Like yeah, yeah. It, it's it's one of those things where like don't spend all your money on one treatment when we very well might be able to just start cyclosporin and pred mm-hmm. and just do our normal routine. But if people have the finances, then we offer it first. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And it's great because when it works it works. Like next day I'm seeing double the amount of platelets. Yeah. Like if I counted 10,000 platelets the day before, 
And then the next day after IVIG, I'll count, you know, 25,000. And it's amazing. Hmm. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting because it's like, so does it just give the bone marrow or whatever the chance to respond? We, we, again, you know, it, there's not a ton of, uh, research on these cases because there's not that many, I mean, there are, but there's not that many of them. Um, I feel like each year at ACVIM, they talk about the newest things that are coming out of universities with it. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it, it changes, which is nice. Um, one other thing that they talk about is um, vincristine. So vincristine has been shown to, to kind of stimulate the production of platelets, but there is controversy over, yes, the platelets are in this bloodstream, but are they functional? So you may see them, but still have bleeding because the, the, the platelets are, are not functional. So they're there. They're just not doing what they need to do. Um, so Yes, we see an increase, but maybe it's not working as well. So did we, you know, did it help? But again, you know, if we're not seeing any, sometimes we'll, we'll use Vincristine to kickstart things. So, yeah. And we'll do that too. But if we have another option available, we'll use it just because Vincristine can also be pretty harsh on veins. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, we don't jump to this. This is not like no, our first line of defense. It's like kind of when we've tried everything and mm-hmm. we're just all getting, we're hoping it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like our, our kind of the cornerstone to immune therapy or to immune suppression for these IMHA ITP kids is going to be immunosuppressive therapy, which is glucocorticoids. So um, a lot of times in hospital, we'll start with like dexamethasone SP. We'll start at IV. Um, If they're tolerating oral meds, sometimes we'll just start with prednisone or prednisolone, depending on what kind of patient you have. Um, And the thing with this is we're doing whopping doses of steroids. This isn't like the easy, just like, Oh, I have an itchy face. This is, this is immune suppressing doses of, of steroids. So it's a long, slow taper. And the reason we're doing a very slow taper is we want to prevent relapse. And when we're talking long, slow taper, we're talking months of being on prednisone, if not years for some of these patients. So just, you know, that's one thing when we're talking to clients, we just need to make sure that they understand that. The problem with steroids, you guys all know them, is there's a ton of side effects. It's really, really important to have conversations with your clients to to get them to understand that probably the most frustrating part of this disease, right? when going home is all the side effects from steroids. Um, so the extreme PUPD, the extreme polyphagia. Um, so, you know, breaking into cabinets or garbage cans that they never did before because they're just so driven with hunger. Um, and you know, the muscle wasting, I feel like muscle wasting is also a huge thing to talk to clients about because that's, that's one of those things they'll, they'll freak out about like the muscle wasting because their pets just look like they're aging. And so it's just really important to let clients know that these side effects, once we taper, you know, the, the, the side effects go away and their pet can start looking more normal again. Um, but I usually tell clients, you know, the, the PUPD, 
like you're talking like these guys are going out every hour to two hours to go to the bathroom. You're probably going to have accidents in the house. Um, they need to, they'll, they'll get you up in the middle of the night. I, I joke and say, it's like having a newborn baby. Um, cause that's what I felt like when I had to deal with it with my dog. Um, so it's just that part is, is sometimes really draining for clients. And so they just need to understand that. Yeah. And then we also do secondary immune suppressions. So historically azathioprine was used, but the side effects include like bone marrow suppression. So CBCs needed to be rechecked frequently, but CBCs are being rechecked frequently in these patients usually anyway. Well, and it was Um, always, it's bone marrow suppression is a pain because it's like, do we have bone marrow suppression because of drug or because of disease? Do we have a relapse of the disease? And I always hated that because I was like, well, how do you know? And the only way to know for sure, there's two ways to do it. One is switch to a different drug and see if things get better or two, do bone marrow biopsy. (laughs) Which could you imagine doing that every time? Like, yeah, it's just, it can also cause acute liver toxicity. We know from our liver episodes that the liver is a little sensitive, um, which is fine. (laughs) We use cyclosporin most often. Um, Yeah. So we use brand name Atopica. Like we're pretty specific on brand name atopica use. Yeah. We we definitely have that conversation with clients, um, and say, we highly recommend atopica brand only. Um, because the F they, there's just so much studies that show the bioavailability of atopica versus the human generic cyclosporin. Yeah. The blood levels are just different and you can measure blood levels. Like you can do yeah. that, but yeah, you know, it's, I think Mississippi state does. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, it's the IELT, uh, Auburn, I think that, well, I think they might both do it. It depends mm-hmm. on if you're doing the cyclosporin, like peak and trough levels, mm-hmm. or there's the IL2, which is the suppression, which that yeah. is, that is Mississippi state specifically. Yeah. And then sometimes, especially if it's cough, cough it, atopica can be cost prohibitive. Yeah. So of course, if we have to choose, like, feel free to go for the modified, the cyclosporin modified generic brand. Um, sometimes we'll add in also mycophenolate. Mm -hmm. Um, wait, I have to, I have to say something about atopica first though. It's really important to have a conversation with your client about not going back and forth between brand versus generic. Um, so if they go to a pharmacy and they fill the generic instead of the brand, the client needs to be aware that you don't want to go flipping back and forth because what can happen is if you're, let's say you're on Atopica and the next fill is generic, well, now all of a sudden you're having a relapse, but it could be because they're not getting the same amount of drug that they were getting mm-hmm. with Atopica or you are on the generic and now you're on Atopica. Well, maybe now you're getting too much drug. So it's really important to not switch back and forth. Whatever you end up picking, just stick with it until you and the doctor have a conversation about, okay, let's switch to the other one to see if we get better response or less GI side effects or whatever it is that you're dealing with. But it's really important not to flip flop back and forth on brand versus generic. Yeah. And then, yeah, sometimes we'll add in mycophenolate as well. Um, I feel like mycophenolate was like a kind of the rage a few, like five years ago because it, it, it came out. And, and so mycophenolate is used in human medicine for bone marrow trans or well for organ transplants. 
And so we tried it with our IMHA ITP pets, but I feel like so many of them, either one, we're getting GI toxicity because we were starting the doses way too high or two, they just didn't respond as well. And so yeah, we, we usually ended up use switching. it in conjunction. Yeah. We, we don't normally do just mycophenolate. We'll do atopica. And if they're not responding as well to atopica and pred, then we'll add in mycophenolate. And then mm. as we try to taper, because atopica is so expensive, mm. we'll taper the atopica first. Interesting. So you do like triple, triple if drugs. Needed. If yeah. needed. Yeah. Yeah. And then melatonin we do very frequently. So which- yeah, melatonin <laughs> is for ITP. Mm-hmm. They don't, they haven't shown it to work as much. I mean, honestly, there's like one or two studies <laughs> and they're very small. Um, and the literature isn't a ton, but melatonin really doesn't harm anything. So, so we just add it in for our ITP. Yeah. All of our ITP, but we do notice a difference if people aren't giving it consistently, we've had dogs relapse, like every other meds given consistently Mm -hmm. there, but they're like, Oh, but we ran out of melatonin and we didn't think it was a big deal because it's just a supplement. Right. right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's thought that melatonin stimulates platelet generation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the theory is that it, because we talked about the mega carrier sites. The theory is, yeah. is it takes those big young platelets and actually breaks them down quicker. So it's yeah. almost like it it makes the bone marrow make new cells faster. Um, so it helps make the little platelets from the big platelets quicker. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> we talked about the prophylactic prophylactic anticoagulant. So we'll do aspirin or clopidogrel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to touch too much on that just because we talked about it yep. a lot already. <laughs> yep. um, splenectomy can be done. So mm-hmm. because we've talked about in the past about how the spleen actually breaks down these cells, the spleen can sometimes be the cause for the, these immune issues. So removing the primary organ responsible for destruction of antibody sensitized platelets and red blood cells, then potentially you have that ability to reverse IMHA or ITP. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, some these most of these patients who do have a splenectomy still require medications, and I think, I think it's um, they they've really looked at it on patients that just have frequent relapses. Yes, that it helps reduce pre- those. Yeah, pre- yeah, reduce the amount of relapses or the severity of the relapse. Like you yeah. can maybe We've be had, on lower doses of drugs instead of like the really high doses of drugs. Yeah. So. Yeah. We have had, I think one patient come off of drugs altogether, but it took over a year. Mm. Um, I've had a so, couple come off of drugs, but I'm just I, thinking it, recently. Yeah. I don't know if we've really jumped to splenectomy for anybody, which is weird. You would think we would, but we haven't. Yeah, we don't. It, it's Yeah. It's hard to convince someone to do a major abdominal surgery mm-hmm. for a patient that has some bleeding issues. <laughs> well, especially when they are like still kind of sick. Yeah. And like when the patients are better, it's also still hard to convince them of a yeah. major abdominal surgery because yeah. they're like, but we're better. Yeah. Exactly. Why would we mess with that? Yeah. So, um, and I think, you know, when we've, we've talked about all this stuff and honestly, the, the biggest I think the biggest issue is just client communication, making sure we explain to clients, like you need to be compliant. Like this is not a one time in the hospital and you're done with it. Right. So just making sure that they understand the medications, the disease process, that it's, 
it's a long-term thing. You're going to have a lot of highs and lows as far as, far as finance, uh, both financial and just emotional burden. Using like the pet health journal to keep track of your drugs and appointments is huge. Using a quality of life scale is really important because they need to have that conversation before it becomes an issue. Um, you know, setting expectations, both finances, the emotional toll on the family, because this is not something that they can just like go on vacation and take the dog to the kennel kind of thing. They're probably going to have to have a pet sitter. Um, we, I know, I think Jordan and I, we've talked about this quite a bit is we build relationships with those clients so mm -hmm. that they can ask us questions and, because this is going to be very overwhelming to try to explain this disease to a client. So building that relationship where they feel like they can talk to you is good. If they like doing Facebook, you know, there's, there's different Facebook groups they can be a part of. I always put a little caveat in that yeah, yeah, because some of the Facebook groups, you're like, that is not how you treat it. Yeah. So you can, you can talk to them, but it's nice for like support. So they don't feel like they're alone because most of their friends and families are not going to understand what, what the heck is going on. If your clinic does support groups, that's a, that's a really good idea. So that might be something that like, as a technician, you can maybe spearhead for your area. Right. Um, and then you know, talking about the side effects of corticosteroids, like I said, I think that's probably the biggest things that clients are going to have to understand. Uh, we've seen foreign bodies because of it or eating mm -hmm. gum. I had one of my Evans patients get bust into mom's purse and eat an entire pack of xylitol gum before. So that was fun. We had to deal with xylitol, like vomiting with an Evans patient. Um, my dog she ate entire loaf of Panera bread one time and just had blowout <laughs> diarrhea. So, so it's like, you know, just letting clients know that this is something to deal with. Um, mm -hmm. Going yeah. home, they probably don't have normal amount of platelets yet. So again, keep going with wet food, no chewing on hard toys, bones, anything like that, just to kind of mm -hmm. prevent bleeding no strenuous yeah. exercise. Yeah. So no activities like playing with the other puppy in the house. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let them chew on their neck. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because these patients are typically going home with less than a hundred thousand platelets. Yeah. Um, I, we usually send them like 50 to 70. Yeah. That's probably about what we do too. The, the nuts or upward trending depending yeah. on finances. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's also important to note to these clients that like it, these patients require frequent rechecks. So we're going to be, especially until their platelets are normal. Yeah. Um, we're going to be rechecking CBC and platelet counts every one to two weeks um, or PCBs, yeah. you know, twice a week, if we're able to chemistries at a minimum of every six months, unless they um, had high T Billy, then more frequently until it's normal, then maybe every six months kind of thing. Exactly. And then if complications happen, th they're going to typically occur within the first two months after going home from the hospital. So mm -hmm. this is going to be something like a thrombo thromboembolytic event leading to cause of death. So we do talk to clients about, you know, what to watch for if your patient or if your pet's super lethargic, breathing heavy, coughing, any of those things. Um, inflammation creates a hypercoagulable state. So we're also going to be monitoring for UTIs or other minor infections that someone mm -hmm. might not think too much of uh because that can also set off a relapse so exactly yeah yep. we're going to talk about pulmonary thromboembolism and dic um 
our Evans patients are definitely at a higher risk of relapse than, the, than our IMHA or ITP patients. Uh, again, we're severely immune suppressing these patients. So we are at an increased risk for infections. Like stupid um, infections. Like yeah. we've, I've seen, you know, they, they cut themselves on playing on something and then all of a sudden they've got this horrible infection and you're like, oh, yeah. so you My have to deal with it. ITP or- patient had like a weird hot spotty looking pyoderma nest like right on the center of her back. And it was one of those things like you can't pick at it because she started to relapse from the infection. Uh. (laughs) So we couldn't like pull at it because it was causing bruising and it was, and and it was just. Ooh, you know what we didn't talk about? We kind of skipped over it, but with steroids is the risk of developing diabetes and Cushing's. Yeah. I've unfortunately seen a couple of them become diabetic. And so talking to the clients, because again, they're PUPD, right? And, and polyphagic is using low calorie treats. So ice oh, cubes, sure. celery, carrots, just to help prevent them from becoming so overweight because they want to eat all the time from the high steroids and then becoming more predisposed to diabetes. So it's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's really, we've had a couple that their BGs had started to creep up and we were like, ah, and we like, lowered the steroids and made them change their diet. And we, what were you like? "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) We thank goodness we're able to skirt around the diabetes, but you know, it's something to be very, very cognizant of, you know, that we're, because again, diabetes is also inflammatory. So now you've got even more inflammation. So we just need to be very careful to close monitoring. If they have questions, Mm -hmm. let us know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) These patients are also susceptible to developing other allergies just because their immune system is so ramped up already. It can just easily redirect to other things like food, environmental medications. So we just need to keep an eye out for anything unusual and talk to the veterinarian or talk to that staff um, because Mm -hmm. a lot of clients will say, well, they've been on this food for years. Why would it now be causing diarrhea? Well, their immune system's all messed up and doesn't know what it wants. Yep. That was my dog. (laughs) My dog developed uh, food allergies um, about a year into having Evans. And I was like, are you kidding me? Right? Like she's had this food for years. And no, well, that and like we're on a good roll. <laughs> I wanted to kill her. Dude, if you need Evans stories, I'm your girl. I'm your girl. <laughs> like had all of it. <laughs> yeah. So no. communication is key. I don't know if you guys got that point. Um, or we, you know, we haven't talked about it in a while. <laughs> no, no, I don't think we talk about client communication very much in this episode. <laughs> no. Um, so it's just key to long-term case management, yeah. checking in on these patients to see if they have any questions, make sure that they're still giving the meds, even though they ran out, but they want to, like, we want to make sure they're refilling their medications. Well, um, yeah. Atopica went on back order. And so oh, I called God. a lot of my clients and I was like, Hey, what do you need? Like, sure. We can switch to cyclosporin modified for right now. It's not ideal, yeah. but let's just get it and keep it going. Um, I hated that time in life when Atopica I have a feeling went on it's going to happen order. again. I'm sure it will, but I didn't like it. It was horrible. Yeah. Um, we want to send out reminder calls about like unscheduled appointments. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll put in a reminder call saying need a recheck or re- recommended recheck about this time frame. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll call, we'll call people and be like, Hey, yeah, we, we call, or sometimes we'll just send an email and be like, Hey, just a reminder. Yeah. You're due for a recheck. Um, and, and we, you know, depending on, and I don't know how your clinic does it, but we have both rechecks with the doctor and then we have tech visits 
And, you know, especially when we're doing like frequent, like CBCs and stuff like that. And that's all we're doing. Like it's been a week since the doctor saw him and everything else is going well. Sometimes we just do a, a tech visit and, and just draw the blood and make sure nothing's changed. Yeah. Instead of doing like recheck appointments every single time, which, which adds up. So, you yeah. know, it's good to have that conversation with a client too, to make sure, you know, where are you at finance wise? Because that is a whole other game ball game. If you know, they don't have a ton of money and you want to mm-hmm. spend it wisely. So, oh, for sure. Those are, those are all things to kind of talk to them about as well. Mm-hmm. So it's also important to just inform them that yes, meds will be reduced in time not slow. right away. It's a slow, gradual taper. It's never, okay. Numbers no, are we're going to stop the cred. Um, and that that's hard for clients to kind of wrap their head around, especially if they're showing like side effects from glucocorticoids. So that's yeah. tough. And then also we want to minimize immune stimulus. So we want to avoid giving any unnecessary drugs, especially antibiotics like cephalosporins. Mm-hmm. We want to avoid vaccines. It's not recommended as effective response it's not, vaccines are not recommended because we don't feel that they respond as well to vaccines if they're on immune, like high doses of immune suppressive drugs. Also, if they're on lower doses, they can have a relapse from giving vaccines. It's thought. If if they, yeah, it depends. Like if they're allergic to the vaccine or if their immune system, it's like, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. Like, what you want me to respond? Ah, so yeah. And then same thing: stressful conditions like boarding um, at a boarding facility, getting groomed at a grooming facility. There, there's mobile. There's mobile things now. There's there's different mm-hmm. options for these patients to just try to minimize that stress on the body. Yeah. Yeah. I, a ton of information. Yep. If you need to help digesting, like uh, so, Jordan and I eventually. Um, we do have a course planned for all of this because again, it's one of our passions, but we did get it race approved. So, you know, yes, use these episodes, listen to them. Um, once the courses are available, we'll make sure, you know, because, because that's what we do. (laughs) Um, I'm sure we'll mention it once or twice on the podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, but you know, if, if this is, these are like bread and butter diseases for internal medicine. So, you know, diving deep into them is is good because most general practitioners want nothing to do with these diseases. Um, so we see them. (laughs) So, So. okay. Well, we have a lot coming up between when this episode releases and the end of vet tech week. So I'm sure we will chat with some of you guys periodically throughout the next 10 days Uh (laughs) (laughs) and even afterwards like if you have questions about any of this stuff please hit us up on facebook or in the membership group um because yeah i i again i love talking about these diseases um i talked to acbim about evan's syndrome and so you know this is and again it was dear and near and dear to my heart because of my own personal dog so i can I can tell you for both sides of the equation. Um, yeah. And now for the question of the week. Question of the week. I'm going to say is, uh, 
what is your experience with either ITP, IMHA, or Evans? Um, like, do you have a particular patient that you can think of and just make sure you can share patient information um, and let us know uh, your thoughts on it? Yes. All right, guys. That's a good one. Anything else for this week or are we good? I think we're good. That was a lot of information. (laughs) There was a lot of, a lot of stuff to to hand at you, but we talked about some of this in episode 51. We also talked a lot of like the lab stuff back in the hematology series that we did, which I think was what. So 21, 22, and 23 was 21 was the hematology kickoff. 22 was about red blood cells and 23 was about coags. So those are, those are all ones that you can listen to. And then there's the immune system kickoff, which was 50 and then part one, which is 51. So hopefully we tied it all together for you. All right, you guys. Um, thank you again for listening. Thank you for getting your learn on. We hope that you have a wonderful week. If you are listening to this before Vet Tech Appreciation Week, happy Vet Tech Appreciation Week. If you're listening to it afterwards, we hope that you had a wonderful week. And uh, we will talk to you next time. All right, you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.